Friends, I want to invite you now to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 3, where we'll continue uh, walking through this great book, this amazing collection of stories and speeches that we've been focused on since the beginning of this year. Uh, One of the things we looked at last week, at the end of chapter 2, one of the things that we saw was that there were signs and wonders happening through the ministry of the apostles. Verse 43 of chapter 2 says, All came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. We've seen that reference a couple times now. We haven't seen one actually happen. We haven't seen it in action. Not until chapter 3. In chapter 3, we get our first look at one of these signs and wonders and at what happens through this miraculous power that God unleashes. What I want to do this morning is defer questions that you may have about whether or not the event that we're going to read about here is possible in the world that we live in. I know those questions may be there for you, that you may be interested in knowing, like, is the, 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 the fact that we're told here about this miracle coming out of nowhere where the laws of nature are overcome for a moment mean that we can't trust what we read here, that this story is, is not truly historical, but something more, something more like fable or mythology. I know you may have those questions, and I have a lot of, uh, of questions like that of my own that I've wrestled with and would enjoy the chance to talk to you about, and some helpful resources that I think uh, may help you as you wrestle with those questions. But you can't do everything in every message. So I want to just say here at the top, we talked about this a little bit early on in the first couple of sermons of this series, and there's a lot more we could talk about if you'd like to one-on-one. But for today, what I want to do is set aside questions about whether or not this sign, this wonder we're going to experience this morning is possible. And instead, focus on why signs and wonders matter for the story that Luke is telling. I want to take up the question of, for us, as we try to understand what he wants to teach us, what is the usefulness of of signs, of miracles like the one we're going to look at this morning? See, here's the thing. Signs, like the one we'll look at just now, are often pictures of or pointers to what Jesus came to do, to his purpose on earth. They're often also platforms for a speech that explains the deeper meaning of what's just happened. That happens a lot in the Gospels. Jesus will do a miracle, and he'll say, no, this was a symbol. This was pointing you to something bigger than what just happened in front of you. And then they often set up a platform for him to speak about who he is and what he's, what he's come to do. And both of those things happen here in this story in chapter 3. We get a sign rich with symbolism. I want to make sure you understand. And then we get a speech with a powerful testimony about Jesus. And along the way, as we look at the sign and as we look at the speech, we're going to get a wonderful look at what sort of world Christians are hoping for and even more, what sort of God we Christians are hoping in. What sort of world we're hoping for and what sort of God we're hoping in. That's what we're going to see together this morning as we walk through what happened and what it means. What I want to do is, is break down our time together this morning into three steps. I want you to see what Jesus did through Peter. That comes in the first ten verses of chapter 3. Then I want you to see what Peter says about Jesus. That's the rest of the chapter. And then once we've done that, once we've uncovered what's said here in Acts chapter 3, I want you to think about, I want to help you think about what Peter's message about Jesus means for you. So what Jesus did through Peter, what Peter says about Jesus and what Peter's message about Jesus means for you. That's our, that's our plan this morning. 
It's a long passage. I want to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word as I read the first 10 verses. And then later on in the service, I'll continue reading uh, when we get to the next sections of the chapter. So here we have the sign itself, beginning in Acts chapter 3, verse 1. This is God's word to us this morning. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a lame man from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John go about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong and leaping up. He stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is God's word. You can be seated. Let's look together first at what Jesus did through Peter. The story begins on a normal day for these two apostles, for Peter and John, headed to the temple for prayer in the middle of a normal afternoon. As we've been told at the end of chapter 2, they were doing day by day, presumably with the other Christians, presumably to pray and also to hear teaching from the apostles. It's also a normal day for another man, a man born with some sort of congenital disability. It's a disability so severe that he can't work to provide for himself and must beg ask for money to cover his needs, a disability so severe that he couldn't even walk himself to the place that he needed to be in in order to ask for money and get what he needed. He had to be carried there every day by friends. This man passed by crowds day after day, every day at the beautiful gate, sees Peter and John approaching that gate and calls out to them for alms. And everything that happens next only happens because Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John. These men see this disabled beggar, truly see him. Would have been easy to overlook him. Would have been easier, honestly, to overlook him than to see his pain and suffering, especially since he's a stranger in a world full of suffering strangers, in a world full of so much suffering, you you can't take care of all of it, and better not to think about it. But like Jesus before them, these men see and love this beggar. They have compassion. They aren't detached from what they see. They're ready to enter in. They see him, and they say to him, look at us, look at us, and he does. Surely what he expected was that they were going to give him some money. Finally, somebody's going to stop and and, and give me something that I can use to buy bread. And at first, this beggar doesn't get what he's looking for. I wonder if he didn't feel a flash of familiar disappointment when Peter says to him, I have no silver and gold. Can't be the first time he's heard those words. 
I mean, it's just like a first century version of the classic don't have any cash on me response. Dismissive and convenient. Except that, that Peter's coming from a totally different place. That's not what's going on here at all. I don't have money, Peter tells him. What I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk, he tells this man. And in verse 7, we see that he took him by the right hand, raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Now, friends, to recognize what's really happening here, you need to see two things. First, you need to see that when Peter says, in the name of Jesus, what he means is that Jesus is the one who's really at work here, not Peter. They're Peter's words. That's true. It's Peter's hand. That's true. But Jesus is the one whose power makes this man well. I mean, the way Acts 2.43 had put it is that these signs and wonders are being done through the apostles. That's important. Not by the apostles, but through them. Or as Peter will say in just a moment, why do you stare at us as though by our own power of piety we've made him walk? Don't look at me, in other words. Look at the one who works through me. The first thing you need to know to get what's happening here is that it's Jesus at work through Peter, not Peter. The second thing you need to see is that what Jesus does through Peter for this lame man is more than just a one-off bit of magic or an eye-catching sort of pyrotechnical display of some sort. Like his miracles in the, in the Gospels, what Jesus does here is a sign. Think of a road sign pointing to something else, something bigger. It's an advertisement for the work that he's doing all over the world. Did you notice, friends, how in verse 8... Luke makes such a point of emphasizing that this man went around leaping. Did you see that? He leaps up. And then he goes into the temple, not just walking, but leaping, we're told. Verse 8. This is no accident. In the prophet Isaiah, one of the most beautiful descriptions of God's plan to restore the world broken by sin Chapter 35, there's a promise that God will save his people from the consequences of what they've done, that he will restore the kingdom that's been destroyed, that he'll bring life and peace where there's now wilderness and wasteland. And in the middle of this prophecy is a set of signs that you'll see that tell you it's happening. Listen to these signs. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. And then the lame man shall leap like the deer. That's Isaiah 35. And once again, just as he did in chapter 2, when everyone was wondering, how are these men speaking in all of these tongues? Peter goes back to the word and says, this that you're seeing is that that was spoken of. This is that. It's happening. He's doing it. Remember at the beginning of Acts, we were told that the first book Luke wrote, wrote was all about what Jesus began to do and to teach, meaning this book will be about what Jesus continues to do and to teach. And here we see it right here. These signs point the way. Jesus is still at work. Jesus will still make all things new. That's what he's doing now through Peter. Now, 
as so often happened in the life of Jesus and in his ministry. The point of what's just happened isn't left to the imagination. Maybe some of the people who were watching this happening didn't know about Isaiah 35. They didn't know about the lame man leaping and what it points to. So Peter doesn't leave them to read too much between the lines. The rest of this chapter, Peter explains what's just happened. And what he says puts their focus not on this man, not on himself, but on the Jesus who healed this man through Peter. And what he says about Jesus is far more astounding, more wondrous than the miracle itself. The the, the speech that that we're going to now spend the bulk of our time looking at breaks down into two parts. There's a first part, verses 11 to 16, where Peter explains what just happened, what it means. He explains what it means. And then there's a second part, verses 17 to 26, where Peter applies his sermon He basically tells them what to do with it. He he shows them how to respond. So he tells them first, what is the meaning of what's just happened? And then he tells them, here's how you respond to what's just happened. I want to take these one at a time. I'm going to read verses 11 to 16 first. We're going to talk about what Peter says, about what this sign means. And then we'll read uh, verses 17 to 26 and talk about how they're supposed to respond before we look ahead to, to our own lives and what it means for us. So... In the first part of his speech, Peter rises to explain what they've just seen. Happens in verses 11 to 16, and I want to read them for you now. Verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we've made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. That God, in other words, your God, in other words, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this were witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. It's the first part of what Peter says about Jesus. is meant to tell us what it means that this man has just been healed. Once again, a a crowd gathers around this marvel. Peter rises to explain it to them. He deflects attention away from himself. Don't look there. Instead, look over here. Our power, our piety didn't heal this man. Well, who did then? What just happened? How do you explain it? And verse 13 gives us the answer that the remaining verses unfold. How do you explain how this man was healed if not through Peter's power or Peter's piety? Well, he tells us this is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, that God, your God, he has glorified Jesus. That's what explains this healing that you've just seen. Verse 16 sums it up. His name, Jesus' name, that's where, how this man was made strong. This man is well because God's raised up and glorified his servant Jesus who now reigns in power. That's the summary. So once again here, the focus is on what God is doing. It's on what God's doing through Jesus in the world. 
And friends, here's why this matters so much for this story that he's telling, for this moment. This Jesus, this one that that God has glorified and raised up, this Jesus who's just healed this man, who's alive and at work, this Jesus who lives and reigns and continues to do what he's always been doing, this Jesus is the same Jesus they rejected and killed. Did you notice that the central verses here in this section read kind of like a legal indictment? They're basically a list of charges laced with irony that shows how badly these people have mistaken who they were dealing with when they decided to kill Jesus. This Jesus now glorified, look at these verses. He's the one whom you delivered over. You gave him up. This Jesus now glorified, still at work. This Jesus is the one you denied in the presence of Pilate when Pilate was ready to let go of him. This Jesus, who's now been glorified, he's the holy and righteous one that you exchanged for a murderer. And this Jesus, now glorified and still at work, is the author of all life whom you decided to kill. Underneath all these charges that he's bringing against them, I think really what we're meant to see is one underlying charge. The charge that he's bringing against them is treason. This is God's servant we're talking about. He's God's chosen king, Peter has already said. He's God's sent one, given to bless and to restore his people. He's the one your your, your fathers were promised who would rule forever on the throne of David. And when he got here, he did exactly what he was supposed to do. Everything the prophet said he would do, he did. He was fulfilling the job description. And when you saw him, you killed him. You deposed the rightful king. That's treason. And friends, that isn't even the biggest reveal. The biggest reveal in in Peter's explanation of what this means is not even that they killed the one God sent to fulfill all of his promises to them. The biggest reveal is that this one that they've killed, well, he's back. He's alive. He's well. And he's more powerful than ever. God has raised him up and glorified his servant. So what do you think would happen next? Well, what happens in The Lion King? When Scar kills Mufasa, steals his throne from the rightful heir, Simba, and orders Simba to be killed but fails only to learn later of his failure when Simba returns full grown, what happens then? What happens after Prince Hamlet is banished by his evil uncle Claudius who has killed his father, married his mother, taken the throne that should be rightfully his? Doesn't end well for Claudius. Or or what about when Killmonger challenges the throne of the Black Panther, hurls him over the waterfall thinking he's finished, but the Black Panther survives, gets nursed back to health and returns for the throne that's been taken from him? What happens then? We know what happens to unsuccessful coup attempts. Those who take their shot and miss do not survive. What happens next is run for your life if you can. Run now, not later. Don't collect your things. Go with the clothes on your back. Just get out of Dodge. 
That's what we're meant to expect by verse 16 of chapter 3. And that's what makes the response that Peter calls for so shocking in verses 17 to 26. We've seen what this sign means. Now look at how he tells them to respond. I want to read verses 17 to 26. And now, brothers, knowing what you know, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Look at what Peter actually tells him to do in response to what they've just seen. What he tells them is dripping with the grace of God. We expect him to say, run for your lives. And instead he tells them, in effect, run back to him. Repent and turn back. Stop running away and come home. Verses 19 to 21 are really the heart of Peter's sermon application. These, these verses tell us the essence of what Peter wants them to do. It starts with repentance, not running away from God, but back toward God and his chosen king. And then it beefs up why we should repent. It shows all of these blessings that will come if we do. There's three things especially that he mentions in these verses. If you come back to him, if you stop running away and actually run back, well, then your sins will be blotted out. Look at that, verse 19. Blotted out sounds like what it is, completely forgiven, completely wiped clean. And don't miss the message in this promise. It is not what they could have ever expected. It's not just that he offers to forgive them now. It, it's way more than that. It's deeper than that. He's not just saying, I'll forgive you. Even though what you, you did what you did, I'll forgive you. What he's saying, in light of, the, in light of verses 17 and 18, what, what he's saying is that he allowed you to do what you did, to kill him, precisely so that he would have the right to forgive you for killing him and for every other sin that you've committed. It was his death, which he chose through your evil against him, that gives him the freedom, the right, the authority to forgive your sins because he's paid the cost that forgiveness always demands. That's what he's saying here. Who would do that? 
the next blessing that he mentions is that times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. Probably what we have here is a reference to the Holy Spirit again. That, that you come back to him and you'll receive what we've received. Times of refreshing from God's presence means this. Look at this. Look at, think of the, the, the counterintuitive nature of this promise. You have tried to run Jesus, Emmanuel, whose name means God with us, the greatest expression of God's presence we had ever seen. You have tried to get rid of him, to run him right out of the world. You have said no to God's presence. But if you'll run back to him, even though you've done what you've done, you can enjoy the precious gift of his presence like water in the desert on a level you have never imagined before. And then the third promise sums them all up. You run back to him. You repent and turn back. And he'll send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, who's in heaven now, waiting, but will one day return so that he can fulfill all the message of restoration that the prophets have pointed ahead to. He'll send the one you rejected back to you as your king who will restore all things just as God promised through his prophets long ago. Let me, let me stop there and sum up. I want to make sure you're getting this. The gist of these three verses, which are the gist of the whole application section, is that God is still planning to fulfill all his promises to his people. The promises that the prophets pointed ahead to, that Moses pointed ahead to, all of these references to covenants and prophets and and to Moses, they're, they're casting this picture of expectation that's been building. God is still on with all of that. Look at the God with whom you're dealing. Not just what you're hoping for, but what we hope in. You have killed the one that God has glorified and he chose to let you kill him precisely so he could forgive you and keep all his promises to you. The healing was one thing, guys, but this is the real wonder. For him to be faithful to all his promises, he leverages your evil against him just so he could be good to you in the way he promised he would be. Or as verse 26 sums it up, God, having now raised up his servant, sent him to you first you who killed his servant, to bless you by turning you away from your wickedness. He comes in peace. That's amazing. So, we've seen what Jesus did through Peter and what Peter's had to say about Jesus. I hope those are clear enough to you from this beautiful passage. I want to now spend the minutes we've got left talking about what Peter's message about Jesus means for you. And I'm going to give you three examples. There's a scratch in the surface, but I just want to encourage you with this text for a few minutes here before we're finished. First thing that Peter's message about Jesus means for you is that this grace, the true wonder of this passage, is available to you just as it was to them. In fact, this story and this speech that explains it is put here for us. It's preserved for all of these years so that we know what kind of God invites us to run to him. He's a God who is faithful even to those who reject him. If you're not a Christian this morning, I want you to just for a moment consider if what the Bible says about God were true, what it would mean. 
The Bible says that God made you. It says that you live now because he decided to give you life. That every breath you've ever taken, every meal you've ever eaten, every trace of beauty you've ever enjoyed on any square inch of this earth, every bit of it has come to you as a free gift from his hand to your life. And that every gift, the Bible says, that he's ever given is meant to draw you into a relationship of trust and dependence where you look to him for what you need and love him in response to his love for you. That's what the Bible says about your life. Let's just consider for a moment, if that were to be true, then what? Let's just say it's all true. And let's say that up until now in your life, you haven't thought much of him, much less honored him or loved him or looked to him day to day. Let's just say that the good things in your life are things that you have taken credit for as things you provided to yourself. Can you see the offense in that? Now, perhaps you didn't know what you were doing. You didn't know he was there. At some level, you were acting in ignorance, just like these killers of Jesus acted in ignorance. But if it's all true, that's what you've done. And what we see in this story is that God invites you to run to him anyway. And even if you have received and disposed of every gift he's ever given you without gratitude, he will continue to give you good gifts anyway. And he offers to forgive you completely. And he, because he sent his son who chose to die, has already paid the cost of forgiving you for what you've done. We know forgiveness is never free, The one who forgives always has to pay a cost that they choose not to demand from the one who did them wrong. But in Jesus, who suffered on purpose, planned by God, God has already paid what it will cost him to forgive you. And if he was willing to forgive the very ones who killed his son, he will forgive you too. And as we've already seen in Acts chapter 2, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You are not the exception. Here's a second thing that Peter's message about Jesus means for you. Peter's message means that restoration, the restoration we all long for, no matter how we walked in here this morning, all of us want restoration. And the restoration we want comes only through repentance. These promises that God is fulfilling through Jesus, they do go way beyond personal forgiveness. It's true that he promises to make everything new, every trace of brokenness, every fallout from every sin. It's not just about me and my own connection to God being restored so that I have a sense of inner peace that I can live with throughout my days. It's way bigger than that. What what Peter has pointed us to is a time, this is a quote from him, for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. Everything broken will be restored. Every single tear will be wiped away. Every trace of the power of sin and death will be banished forever and all things will be made new. But even though this restoration we long for is that big and then some, it will never, ever happen 
apart from your personal repentance and faith. You, what I mean to say is that you won't get to enjoy it, friends, apart from repentance. Did you notice his warning through Moses? The quote from Moses was that, that, that here God will raise up a prophet just like me. Listen to him. Do whatever he says. You can trust him. That prophet is Jesus. But if you don't listen to him, you'll be cut off. And the restoration will happen. And all things will be made new. But you will not be able to enjoy that new world that God will build. Friends, this, this is certainly an invitation to us to repent and believe, but it also affects our, our posture as Christians towards those who don't yet trust in Christ. It, it's important for us to recognize that, that what God's doing through Jesus stretches as far as the curse is found. It is bigger than me or bigger than anyone else in their personal peace and their ability to cope. But, but you need to also know that we have a very specific role in this restored world we've been promised. And our role is Peter's, not the role that Jesus has. Do you notice how Peter talks about this restored world? He says, we wait for it. Heaven had to receive this Messiah. He'll come back, but for now we wait until he chooses to come and restore all things. He waits. That's Peter's posture. And he calls these people to repent. He says, do it, turn back, repent now before it's too late. Our role is Peter's role. Our work does not restore all things. It can't. And for now, we're not loving people well if we don't call them to repent and believe in the only one who can restore their life because there's no other way they get to enjoy the new creation that we're longing for. I want to mention one more thing. One more thing that Peter's message about Jesus means for you and for me. We have to be careful with this one, but there is tremendous encouragement in it when we can learn to see it. God even uses evil to fulfill his promises. Verses 17 and 18 point the way. I know you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Meaning, you did what you did. It was evil. But God, even through you, was doing what he was doing. Bringing about a suffering Messiah who could forgive people for what they'd done. I know there are huge questions about sovereignty how God can be ruling over everything, ordering everything that happens, and how we can still be free and responsible for the things that we do. Both of those things are taught in the Bible. And the Bible doesn't show a lot of interest in resolving how those two things can fit together. Peter doesn't even go there. He just mentions, you did what you did, you're responsible for it. And at the same time, God was doing what he was doing. He wasn't caught off guard. He was intentional. He had it all planned. And when Peter goes there, He talks about God's sovereignty over evil, not for some sort of philosophical gamesmanship, but for real-world comfort for people who know from experience that this world is not what it should be, that they are not what they should be. I think what we can learn from how Peter uses this is that there's comfort for you if you have experienced great evil from others against you. 
and if you've been guilty of great evil towards others. If you've experienced great evil done against you by someone in your life, there's comfort for you here, friends. I know this is not hypothetical. There are many of you who have been wounded and betrayed and even abused by people who had no right to treat you as they have. And I'm not going to deny that what they did was wrong, that it demands justice. God takes it seriously, so don't hear me minimizing what was done to you. But can you see the comfort that's offered to you by this sign that God knows how to take what was meant for evil and bring about good for you in your life? God is using everything to restore you after the image of his son. He knows how to use even that evil to do his work in your life. And friends, if you, if you look, you may already see him doing that. Bringing beauty out of the ashes someone else spread over you. There's comfort here too if you're the one who has done the betraying. The one who has done the abusing of one kind or another. Your evil may weigh you down every single day that you wake up. And there's something true in what you feel, if so. There's no path to healing that doesn't acknowledge the grievousness of our sin against other people. And I don't want to minimize that now either. But what this passage has told us is that What you've been guilty of doing does not have to define your life, not only because God will forgive you and wipe clean your slate with the blood of Jesus, but because God has the power and the intention to bring good out of what you meant for evil. His plan is one I can't see into, and I know you can't either. But we know that his plan is to restore all things even the mess that you've made. And that he can bring beauty out of the ashes of of what you've burned down. And if he makes this offer to those who killed his son, he makes it to you too. So now what I want to do is pray that God will give us eyes of the heart to see the beauty in what he's offered and to lean into it. Let's pray together. Father, I do pray that you would apply your word to us, knowing that there are so many hurts and so many guilts uh, all over this room that need healing and comfort, and knowing that they are far more, uh, far more nuanced and specific than any one of us will ever know about. I, we, we just fall back on your power, the power of your spirit to love your children with specificity and intentionality. We pray that you would apply your gospel to your people this morning. And we pray for hope and comfort that comes from knowing that the king is risen and reigning and interceding for us. We pray that you would help us to trust in him now. In Jesus' name, amen.